Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan, and today on The Detail... Money's like manure. You pile it up and it just stinks the joint up. You spread it around and it does good. The National Business Review's list of Aotearoa's wealthiest people and families was released yesterday. And if you're thinking it's going to be all... The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Well, this year... It's a bit different. We realised that not only was it kind of the wrong tone for the times of what everyone was going through, we also sort of just quickly realised that it's kind of had its day. NBR's Maria Slade joins me to chat about the unfathomable wealth of our richest citizens and why, finally, the rich list is focusing on what that wealth is actually doing. Well, what we've done this time round with the list is quite different to how it's been done in the past. Uh, the rich list got put off last year because of COVID and logistical reasons and all of that, and it gave us an opportunity to have a think about it. And we realised that not only was it kind of the you know wrong tone for the times of what everyone was going through in 2020, we also sort of just quickly realised that it's kind of had its day, mm. that idea, that mm. sort of very 80s kind of glitzy. I mean, I think our banner on the last um, NBR rich list was all gold and glitz and, you know. Greed is good. All, yes, exactly, that sort of Gordon Gecko idea. So we, um, we had a good think about it and we thought, well, all right, so what are we doing listing these people and, and how should we approach it again? And so we decided that we needed to put kind of equal focus on profit and purpose. Clearly, business people have to make money. That's how they employ people and invest in their businesses and grow them and, you know, earn export dollars for the country, etc. You know, so obviously the money component is there and important. But we decided to look a bit more holistically at what they're doing and how they are building enterprises, giving back to the country, um, philanthropic endeavours, all that kind of thing that they do as well as as their businesses. And um, so the idea of the NBR list was born. When it does come to the sort of wealth aspect, though, and like for people who might not be familiar with this with this kind of stuff, like I mean, Graham Hart is the wealthiest person in the country, the worth of eleven billion dollars. That doesn't mean that he has eleven billion dollars in the bank. And if there was an island that was for sale for $11 billion in cash, he could just take it out and buy that island, right? No, of course not, no. I mean, it's people like uh, Rod Duke, of course, um, majority owner of the Briscoe Group. Uh, he is very wealthy by virtue of his shareholding in Briscoe's. Mm. But he would have to sell down all his shares tomorrow to, you know, cash up that wealth, which obviously he's never going to do. So, yes, it, it's money held in assets and, you know, that kind of thing. So it's not cash. So how do you actually go about calculating that? What sort of research? Like, is all of this information all publicly available? Can anybody's net worth just be figured out from public information? Uh, it's not easy to mm. do it. And the rich listers, or I should say the NBR listers, usually don't want to talk to us about their wealth. That That's a, quite a Kiwi thing. Yeah. You, you might have more luck, perhaps, if you're researching <laughs> Australians or Americans. But Kiwis, generally speaking, don't like to talk about that sort of thing. And so most of them do not confirm for us what their wealth is. There's the odd one or two that do or give us a ballpark. Mm. What you have to do is you have to research all the publicly available sources, as, as you say, shareholdings, property holdings, uh, any kind of coverage they've had over the, you know, what their business has been doing. If they sell a stake, it's kind of obvious what the overall business is worth. Um, turnover, start the number of staff they mm. employ. Uh, you know, you can tell from a sector, roughly speaking, how profitable the business might be, how long they've held it. Um, and, you know, the, the one thing that's very difficult to work out with privately held businesses in particular, of course, is debt. Mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't know how much debt they've got. Mm -hmm. 
So it is an estimate. You can never be 100% sure. Some people we may have, you know, calculated, you know, completely wrongly for all we know. Um, others we may have uh, underestimated <laughs> their wealth. So it, it is a little bit of a an estimation kind of game. But um, with some of them you can, you can get a reasonable idea of what they roughly would be worth. Are there any particularly interesting trends that have kind of stuck out in this list. I mean, we were talking off here before and I I noted that there are nine newcomers this year, four of them in the tech and services area. Yes, I mean, that's the, the new type of business, isn't it? And uh, one thing that New Zealand is particularly good at is software as a service, mm. particularly business-to-business uh, software enterprises. And so we've seen quite a bit of that lately with big exits like Vend, the retail uh, platform, and Sequent, the geo mapping uh, enterprise. You know, they, they were sold, I think, pretty much on the same day, actually, in, in March. Kiwi retail software company Vend, it was announced on Friday, had been sold to its longtime business partner and uh, competitor Lightspeed for $480 million New Zealand dollars. And on the same day, Sequent, um, which is a Christchurch-based tech firm, was f- sold for US $1.05 billion or $1.46 billion New Zealand dollars. And so there were big exits there for the investors who had backed those uh, companies. Mm. And so that's what you tend to see in that sector. They will build it with a view to exiting at some point. And then they use that wealth uh, to invest in other things. One of the things that struck me about pretty much every other category was the number of families that there were, which suggested to me that there is a serious amount of sort of intergenerational wealth, old school wealth, you might call it, in New Zealand. Yes, I mean, some of them are immigrants that have built their wealth and we're now sort of a couple of three generations down the line. The delegates, for example, um, immigrant winemakers and now Jim and Rosemary delegate, the brother and sister, are running the company. So, yes, you do see a bit of that. You've got people like the Marsfins, big property investors and other investors and other things, the Cushings, same kind of family, the Gallaghers, Mm -hmm. electric fence people. So, yes, you definitely see a fair bit of that. And it, it, just as a personal observation, I think it's quite an int- interesting thing when you think about it in terms of colonialism and, and in terms of, you know, Maori lost a lot of their wealth um, when the Europeans arrived. Um, and so the, and the effects of that are, are still being felt. Mm. And this is just a, a personal opinion, oh, sure, yeah. but, you know, you see that in these families that have handed their wealth down. You know, that, that's how it goes. Mm. That's how wealth is amassed and built. I mean, I mean, the next generation's obviously got to do the right things with it. You can build a fortune build pretty quickly if you... Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you look at uh, Les Mills International, for example. Uh, Les Mills was the original uh, developer of that business, but it's really his son and daughter-in-law, Philip and Jackie Mills, who have built that business. Mm. So they, they took the beginnings and have turned it into something a lot bigger. So, yes, you've got to, you know, uh, make the wealth work for you. But that is an interesting point about how the, um, the riches get handed down. Yes. We talked about how this list is different to lists in previous years. And Dieter de Boney, who, who suggested this story to us, wrote something interesting in an email to us yesterday. This year, you said something similar to it as well. This year, our list is a different beast to the usual list in which wealth for its own sake is celebrated. And I'm interested in that last bit, in which wealth for its own sake is celebrated. Do you think that their attitude has been destructive? Yes. 
And I think, as I said right from the outset, we quickly came to the conclusion that that idea has had its day. Mm. And we want to build on this this database. We we see it as a, a resource. Uh, we've put an awful lot of work into researching the listers this time around. Uh, we had a team of reporters that worked incredibly hard researching the activities of these people as deeply as possible. And we see that as a, um, a resource for people to go to, and we want to build on that mm-hmm. as time goes forward. And as we went through the list and the valuations before publishing, we looked again at a couple of people and went, yeah, they may not get in next year, mm-hmm. not, not because of their wealth, but because of what they are or are not doing for New Zealand. And so we, you know, we may make a few more editorial judgment calls on who's in next year. And again, we're going to be keeping our eyes out for other people to include because uh, we really want to build on that idea of profit and purpose and, and you know, building New Zealand. When you said it became clear that that way of viewing wealth, that viewing wealth through that lens had had its day, what made it clear? Was it COVID? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it probably was getting to the end of its shelf life anyway. And then COVID happened and that changed the way a lot of people looked at the world. And as I mentioned, just the tone would have been completely wrong to come out in 2020 celebrating wealth. Uh, And it did make us think pretty hard as to what is the purpose of doing a a ranking like this? What are we trying to say about Aotearoa in the third decade of the 21st century? Where are we going with this Mm. kind of thing? So it's a a new idea, and I, I wouldn't say we've got it perfect, but... We definitely want – it's a, a new concept that we would like to build on. I can almost feel now the righteous fury of some people listening to us talking about wealth in these kinds of terms and just outraged that the idea of richness even sort of exists. Yes. you. I mean, some people could argue we've had a quid each way yeah. in terms of, yes, all right, we've looked at profit and purpose, but we've also put a number on their wealth and ranked them. So, I mean, that's a fair criticism, I guess. But as I said at the beginning, you can't really have business without the money. That's just kind of how it works. Well, that's the thing. That's kind of what I was getting at is that, like, yes, there are enormous wealth disparities in the world at the moment. And, yes, it's a bad thing. But it is a reality that rich people do exist. Like, I don't know. Do you ever, do you ever find it uncomfortable, work, you know, working in this area where it is talking about such enormous amounts of wealth? I think it's what they do with it. Yeah. You look at someone like Peter Beck, for example, who's a newcomer on the list. You look at what he's doing with his money. He is not out sort of buying Ferraris and, you know, <laughs> flash houses. He says he's got two interests in life. There's really only two things I do, and that's rockets and, and um, entrepreneurism within New Zealand. And he will back any of his former staff that come up with a good idea. Anybody who leaves Rocket Lab to a startup, no matter what it is, whether I believe it or not, I will always invest in it. And he wants to see a runway to another $1 billion company. He says, you know, New Zealand needs more Rocket Labs. Show me how we're going to build another one. So that's that's what he wants to do with his wealth. Mm. So that that's not being well rich for riches sake I don't believe. You know, you've got you've got other people like uh, US-born investor Tom Sturgis now lives in Golden Bay. US-born investor, farmer and climate action advocate Tom Sturgis has put millions into companies that are developing methane-busting livestock feed additives. A champion for regenerative farming, his Lone Star Farms group comprises five South Island beef and sheep farms with about 75,000 sheep and cows over nearly 16,000 hectares. Its motto... He's investing in all sorts of things like a, like a methane inhibitor seaweed company called CH4, uh, CH4 Global. And um, he's also very, very interested in regenerative farming. So he, I mean, he was the one that came out with a great quote about... Um, Money's like manure. You pile it up and it just stinks the joint up. You spread it around and it does good. 
brilliant. You know, that, that he, we didn't ask him to say that. Yeah. <laughs> he, he just came up with that in conversation with our reporter. So that kind of encapsulates what we've tried to do with the NBR list to kind of look at things in the round and look at people who are not only giving money away but also trying to build enterprises for the betterment of New Zealand. There can maybe be a temptation, if you're not rich, to look at really, really rich people and say, you know, having $300 million is a morally despicable thing. That should not kind of exist. No, I mean, I think, again, it's what, it's what they do with it. You know, uh, like Philip Mills, for example, he says... I do absolutely feel that wealthy people have a responsibility to give back. Uh, I think that we all do. And uh, I think in particular right now, uh, we all have a responsibility to, to deal with, do what we can to deal with climate change. I think that companies have to do everything that they can uh, because if we don't deal with this problem, then uh, I'm sorry, but there's not going to be any business, any more business in, in 50 years' time. You know, there's not going to be any more people. He helped found Pure Advantage, the not-for-profit. And, you know, he talks in the video that we've done with him about how he just he couldn't bring himself to vote national anymore because they just weren't, uh, they just weren't getting any traction with them in terms of climate change initiatives. So, you know, he really cares about the, the future of the planet and feels an obligation to do something about it. Uh, yeah, there's just uh, numerous examples, really. Stephen Tyndall is, mm. is a classic example. He has his Tyndall Foundation, which is the, the philanthropic arm of what he does. But then he has K1W1, which is the venture capital uh, business that is backed, backed Rocket, Rocket Lab, it backed Lanzatech, and he talks about financial citizenship. Well, I think that's something that people need to think very deeply about where they place their money and what good it can do. So in my case, I've always tried to say, if I invest in something, I look for the good that it can do or the benefit that it can provide New Zealand. And, uh, you know, people should think about how they can invest for impact, as his line, um, you know, not just invest in houses which is the, the great New Zealand problem that we have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so much money tied up in real estate that's not doing anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and he also says there's a, a crossover between what K1W1 does and what the Tyndall Foundation does in terms of its interests and where it can do good. And one of the examples he gives is... Um, On a visit to Southland, we managed to, to actually see you know, the truth around cows standing knee-deep in mud um, being fed hay in the winter and then seeing the whole of that... Invercargill Basin basically silting up through through what's happened with intensive dairying. And, you know, we kind of thought, well, it'd be really great if there was some sort of solution to this. We got talking and we, we decided that it would be a great thing to actually try and catch on to something that's booming globally, which, which is oat milk. Um, and so we're in the process of converting quite a lot of that dairy land into, into cereals and to then creating... Um, a lot more oat milk uh, made in New Zealand. Which is more um, environmentally friendly. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's, I think a lot of these guys, I mean, there's a few that um, sort of, in my view, aren't doing terribly much with their wealth. Um, the Freelanders, very, very wealthy property investors in Auckland. They own great swathes of Dominion Road and K Road and... Uh, and they do have a charitable foundation and they do, they do give back. But they're not really doing a lot of property development, for example. Mm. They've done a bit, but not a great deal. Uh, you know, I, I feel that there's a bit of money just sat there, not not doing a lot. Well, I mean, the sort of philanthropy that really wealthy people get up to, 
Political people would say, you know, you're giving money to this cause for image or whatever. They don't seek the limelight quite often because they don't see the point. Why do they need publicity for it? Mm. So, you know, um, former Hansel's and Healthry's owner, Gary Lane, for example, he's invested millions in building a predator fence around his Wairake golf course Mm. and um, he's opened a Kiwi hatching facility. I think that has had a little bit of publicity. But that's just something he's really into. Uh, in in Vicargo, the Richardson O'Donnell family, who own the big transport Richardson's uh, transport group, um, this is an interesting one. They're developing a secure village for dementia patients uh, that replicates everyday suburban life, because mm. you know, as we know, dementia patients can remember things from the early part of their life, but you know, it's their short term memory that that's lost. And so they want to create. It's a Dutch concept, mm. and they want to recreate this here, because you know, because that's just something they think should happen. Like I say, we found surprising corners of activity of, of what some of these people are up to. And and it's also not just the philanthropic stuff. It's the reinvesting. Uh, look at someone like Phil McCaw, who's one of our leading venture capitalists. Mm. He was an early trade me investor, made, made money out of that. Co-founded Movac, the venture capital fund, and they've just done their fifth fund. Mm. And they are reinvesting back into New Zealand businesses, but not only the money, the the expertise and the knowledge and the commercial nous, uh, you know, that's being built through their activities. Uh, so that's hugely important for for New Zealand's future. I suppose, though, the golf course example um, stood out to me. Investing millions into a what was it? A predator fence. A predator fence. Yeah. yeah. But you can also see somebody looking at that and thinking, well, you know, far out. That's a very targeted use of uh, of, of money and, and philanthropic cause, you know, to build a fence around a golf course. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like, oh. But, but, then, but then again, of course, you know, it's his money. He can do with it what he wants, and it's a cool thing to kind of do. I guess the question being, you know, like, it would be dangerous for a society to rely solely on the charity of extremely wealthy people to address social ills. Yes, now you're going down that whole route of what's the purpose of philanthropy and actually one of our journalists, Nicola Shepherds, she's written a feature to go with the list about that very topic and just this whole idea of, you know, should a democratic society that should be providing for everybody be relying on the whims of a group of, a small group of very wealthy people to provide basic needs Mm. for its people. That's quite a conundrum. And another part to that too is should we be looking more deeply into how these people have made their wealth? Mm. You know, know, just for argument's sake, have they been spewing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and, and then they give a bit of money to a, to a conservation project, you know, exactly. that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so that, that is a huge question for the Western world, mm. really. Mm. Yeah. Did you think about addressing that? In the, I guess it would get way too complicated if you were to go into that kind of stuff. We did think about whether we should rank people in terms of how they were doing good. But, yeah, it's just way too subjective. Mm. We just couldn't really think of a useful way to do it. Mm. So that's why we've decided to do it the way that we have. But, again, you know, that's something we could build on as time goes on. MBR may be perceived, you know, as sort of, well, I mean, it's in the name, business-focused publication, maybe a bit more niche. Do you feel like a responsibility, is the word that I'll use, to tell these stories and to show that mega-wealthy people are not simply like Smaug the Dragon sitting in a hollowed-out volcano on a big pile of treasure? I don't know that we feel a responsibility. I mean, they're they're big boys. They can (laughs) manage their own publicity. But... We do uh, want to show things 
holistically and we want a 360 degrees look at what the New Zealand business community is doing and so we're forever looking for stories good bad and ugly about what New Zealand business people are doing that's our job as journalists and we try to be as objective as we can and it's it's pretty interesting because we allow comments on our stories mm. which not all media do now and it's pretty interesting some of the comments you get we don't resolve from it we report without fear or favor and you kind of just, uh, you know, see what happens. And presumably you've actually spoken to and interviewed many of the people on this list. And I'm curious, like, what do you think motivates them? Like, once you get to a certain level of wealth, what do you think motivates really wealthy people? I, I think it varies from person to person, obviously, but uh, I think it's challenge. You know, it's, it's not money, usually. Mm. It, I would be surprised if it was money, actually. Yeah. It's usually the ch- they're looking for the next challenge, the entrepreneurs. You know, like look at the Robinsons. You know, they'll just never stop building businesses, probably. They feel a responsibility to the people they employ. Um, the Ingers, Joan and Glenn Inger, um, they have mushroom businesses and all sorts of other businesses. They have a resort in Fiji. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they paid their staff half-time for 10 weeks uh, in Fiji just so they could pay their grocery bills and you know they've said that it weighs heavily on their shoulders that they're responsible for people's families mm. so I think that is a, a big motivating factor for a lot of them yeah. and also I think in, with the inherited wealth they feel a responsibility to do something with that mm-hmm. you know to honour their uh, you know father or grandfather's endeavours. Just asking on this what do you hope people take away from it from the list? Just the fact that we're thinking about how these people operate and what they're actually doing for the country and trying to look a bit more closely at how they're building um, New Zealand's wealth, I guess, and employing people and, you know, building export dollars and we're not just milking cows and putting all our money in houses kind of thing. (laughs) You know, that there are people out there trying to do other things and, and trying to um, construct a future for this for this country. I, I think that is what the message that we would like to send from this. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Mark Jennings. And thanks to NBR's Maria Slade. Matewa.